So after Putin was foisted on Russians in 2000 as their new president, they also chose to elect him. His direct and coarse language, threats and intimation of violence attracted people and continued to do so for over 20 years. Russians' fetish for strong leaders and superficial social and political stability has now backfired spectacularly. Once he has ascended to power, we should not have been surprised that he stayed and refused to move on. Putin's model of authoritarian leadership always leads to tragedy and blood, humiliation and violence. So we get to February 22nd, when Russia dragged Ukraine and the world into its deep-rooted trauma and hell. The Silicon Curtain podcast has been created to explore issues around propaganda narratives and techniques and the threat they pose to societies. If you like the material we create, then please like and subscribe and share around with your friends and network. Our guest today is ideal to talk around propaganda narratives, their mechanisms and how they work. Peter Pomerantsev is a Soviet-born British journalist, author and TV producer. He is a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics, where he co-directs the ARENA programme. He is also an associate editor at Coda Media. He has written two books about Russian disinformation and propaganda, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, 2014, and This is Not Propaganda, 2019. Peter was born into a Russian-speaking Jewish family in Kiev, in 1977. In 1978, he moved with his parents to West Germany after his father, broadcaster and poet Igor Pomerantsev, was arrested by the KGB for proliferating anti-Soviet literature. They later moved to Munich and then London, where Igor Pomerantsev worked for the BBC World Service. Peter, I've uh, long wanted to have you on the channel and uh, quiz you because you have a unique experience of Russia and, of course, the Russian informational space and media. Well, let's start for everyone in the audience who might not be aware. You've written two fantastic books. We'll put links to those in uh, the video description afterwards. But you have a strong family connection, don't you, to Ukraine? Could you describe a little bit about yourself? Um, that would be of interest to the audience. Well, well, my, my connection to Ukraine is is around I don't know quite deep, around six foot deep, the 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 depth of a grave, really. I mean, I'm from Ukraine, and 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 all my ancestors are are buried there, and I was born there. I was born in Kiev in 1977, but my parents were political dissidents, and in 1978 they were um, thrown out of the USSR. Uh, my father had been arrested for the heinous crime of giving censored books to his friends for which in those glorious days of the Soviet Union you got seven and five so seven years prison five years Siberia but um or you or you were thrown out or you were uh, exiled um which which might sound like a a strange choice for people but actually a lot of people wanted to stay and fight the good fight and quite a lot of my my, my dad's friends who were arrested with him stayed and have gone on to have important political careers in Ukraine. He, he was a poet. He wasn't that interested in a political career and he decided to leave, um, which really means leaving and never seeing your family again, never seeing your friends again, never seeing where you were raised again um, with $200, I think you're allowed to take. So it's, uh, it's, it's, you're a political refugee. Um, 
But after my fa family left the Soviet Union, my father quite quickly, well, after a couple of years wandering around Europe, got a job at the BBC. And I, I grew up accidentally British. I'm very British, as you can hear, but it's a complete accident, which I've always been very aware of. I could have been a little German if my dad had elected to do the PhD at Mainz University he'd been offered, or a little American, which is what most of my father's friends, because many of them emigrated, uh, became. Um, and I, I live in Washington, D.C. Maybe I've got there now. So it really was just because the BBC gave my dad an offer. I mean, the British were actually taking Soviet refugees then. Very, very strict quotas. It that seems like, odd. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very broad. There was a tiny Soviet emigrant community in London that, that I kind of grew up in, but it was tiny. Um, and and nothing like growing up in New York in the Russian community. So uh, that probably anglicized me more. I, I don't know. Um, I didn't have anything else. Um and I only really went back to Ukraine um, after I, I think it was either just before I went to university or just after. I can't remember now. These are either 18 or 22, one of the two. <laughs> I have to I have to recall. I need to go through my notes. Uh, but really very late, probably 18. It was probably, no, I think it was after. It was 22. I was 22 when I went to to, to Ukraine for the first time. And, um, and, and uh, it felt uncannily like coming home I, I which really year was that it. see i don't know it couldn't have it must have been one of my universities it kind of been when i was 22 i was younger mm. i was younger because i remember wandering around and and still being amazed at still being really shy around women because i'd been in an all-boys school by the time i'd finished university that shyness had gone so I must have been a bit younger. I'm <laughs> just thinking of myself at that age. Yeah. Uh, I was still quite awkward. So I, I, I don't know. But, but we're talking what? Um, uh, late 90s? Late 90s? Mm -hmm. uh, a quick visit. Um, so we still had family there. Um, we still have family there. Lots. So um, that's where I went. And and I just always felt uncannily at home in Kiev, really, in, in Odessa. Um, which is where most of my family is from. My father grew up in Chevnitz in the west of Ukraine, where I still have family. But but then I, I lived in Moscow from 2001, 2010. I was very, you know, I wanted a, an adventure somewhere after university, um, you know, and Moscow was one of the places to have that adventure. It was a, uh, it was a city already brimming with evil, really, which I try to then describe in my book. But at the age of 22, evil feels like fun. It, it's mentally stimulating, even if it's not an ideal holiday destination. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, I left. I was there nine years, and I left for many reasons. I mean, nine years is more than enough in one place. But, but, um, and I left because it was already. I left in two thousand ten. It was already clear for me that something was deeply, deeply wrong in the society, and it was heading mm -hmm. towards dictatorship. Um, there, you can already see the signs. Um. Um, but but I also left because because I had kids and um, I didn't want my kids growing up in that environment, so I took them back to London. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, and I can absolutely appreciate that. And there were many people who who asked me, including friends in Russia, you know, why did you choose to go back? Because I I studied um, in in Russia and then went to live after my university degree. And many people say, well, you make you can make a lot more money here. You could get on a lot faster. You could buy your own apartment far quicker. And um, I seem to remember at the time telling people that everything you earn, everything you invest in, everything you create could be taken from you in the bat of an eyelid. And that was met with derision. And of course, this year, 
we're seeing that not only are people's livelihoods and everything they've accumulated uh, and invested their lives in being taken away from them almost instantaneously, they've now got their lives being taken away through the enforced conscription. I mean, does any of this come as a surprise to you from your experiences? Um, what a good question. I still think there's shock. I still think there's shock among um, among some people. But to be honest, when I was there, I was very much an expat and a Westerner with, you know, I could speak decent Russian. So I had a sort of insight into the society. But, you know, the Russians never, you know, always treated me. They'd always assumed I, I'd been, I sort of emigrated in the 90s rather than the 70s. But they very much saw me as as not having grown up there. They could sense that straight away. Um, but um, my, so I was quite naive there the first years especially i kind of brought brought into especially in the first years the idea that russia was was moving towards being a democracy uh of sorts and to be honest it was my russian friends in the arts in business who were always telling me you don't get it this is going to become a full-on dictatorship again they were always hedging their bets so you're saying that people knew that people always knew everything could be taken away and they were always hedging their bets. That's why mm. so much more leaves Russia. Um, they were they were they were always very aware. They were always very keen to get second passports, always very keen to have a backup plan. They're like, you can't. The, the people who are in charge are bad. Now, that doesn't mean that most of them still didn't think that Putin would invade Ukraine or anything. You know, they, they thought simply because that's uh, in many ways, you know, not not an, a rational thing to do in terms of winning not in terms of ethics but just in terms of winning you know it's it's an irrational thing to do so so many of them were surprised that he did something so unwise but um no my russian friends were the ones who were always like this can disappear in a second and always knew it it was actually the westerners who kept on believing in it and who kept on investing in it and would buy apartments and then thugs would come up and take the apartment away and they'd be in shock they're like but there's a rule of law and and the thugs yeah. would be like where the rule of law um, and then be like, well, I'll tell the mayor. I went to a party with the mayor. And they're like, no, where from the mayor? <laughs> like, um, so, so it's the Westerners who are naive. The Russians always got it uh, and exploited it and always had a plan B. And you, you, you worked in the media, didn't you? You worked uh, within the television <clears throat> industry. So you must have seen at close quarters how the Russian state was clawing back control uh, of, of the media. Yes. So I was there from 2000 to 2010. The first four years, I did lots of things. I was very young. I went to film school there. I worked on BBC and Discovery documentaries about Russia. Then 2006, 2010, I, I worked basically a production company set up by a British guy, um, which made Western entertainment formats for Russian entertainment TV. So reality shows. So the company I worked for made Top Gun, uh, Top Top Gear, Top Gun, that kind of thing. right? Yes. Top Gun, Slightly oh, different format. No, they made like Top Gear and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, um, come dine with me. All those sort of things, which was really interesting. So I was actually much more exposed to the entertainment side, and most of the networks that I worked with were pure entertainment networks. So, so the state was pretty hands off on that. Actually, a lot of people were kind of flooding away from news into entertainment and glossy magazines because you could still have you still have complete creative freedom there um so no it was a very strange compromise in the sense that you could do whatever you liked as long as you you know these were entertainment channels so you weren't going to do politics anyway but as long as you didn't touch politics so we were doing very subversive stuff about you know trying to sort of mainstream um lgbt people like getting them on screen so so everybody was right really into that kind of social change um but yes political change was being cut off and the, the fact that people were pouring into 
glossy magazine. So Esquire became the magazine for a while because all these great journalists couldn't write for the main, for the sort of, couldn't work on TV news anymore. So they came and worked for these glossy magazines. So in that sense, there was like, you know, the state was saying, this is ours. The main TV channels are ours. The news is ours. Don't touch this. And it came by stages. You know, first they got rid of one channel, then another channel. Then there were still pockets of good current affairs left. And slowly every one of those would be destroyed. So it happened in stages. And I think some of the last stuff was around when I was leaving, like 2010-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of, um, like there was, I think REN TV was still going and had, still had good news there. Um, and, and they edit up and edit up and edit up over, over between 2001 and 2010. But they were allowing you to have a lot of freedom in, in the arts, a lot of freedom in entertainment where you could do you know, very, very interesting things. And that was the deal. And frankly, a lot of people were happy with the deal. I remember talking with a lot of my Russian friends and they were like, well, you know, not a bad deal. Make tons of money. Um, I wasn't making any money, but, but you know, definitely new Russian producers and stuff who are. And they were like, you know, we stick out of their business. They stick out of our business. And, and that was a sort of a very cynical compromise. Um, the lines had become very blurred. Former dissidents were working with the Kremlin. The Kremlin was working with the reality show producers. Everything was sort of mixed up. Socially, people go to the same bars. Um, and, and I mean, that was the world I tried to describe in my first book, because, of course, underneath this sort of loose cynicism was a deep, deep, deep moral depravity. And beneath that, this sort of lava of trauma that was just waiting to explode. Now it has. And by trauma, I mean sadism mm. and masochism and <laughs> all those sort of deep, things. Deep, deep seated trauma. Um, and, you know, I, it's not pushing it too far to say that you can trace this trauma all the way back to to the Middle Ages and the Mongol horde, which basically, you know, raped the country for decades or centuries in a row. And then what Russians inflicted on, e- on each other and, and now subsequently their neighbours. Um, I think that is that is quite misunderstood, isn't it? How traumatised and deeply confused, perhaps, and even a little lost Russians are because you... You describe in your book, uh, I think very interestingly, the fact that people would try on new ideas, new identities in the way that other people would try on new clothes and styles. Um, almost sort of postmodern, post-truth, you can be anything and, and nothing at the same time. Yes, um, which which reveals a kind of a horrible moral emptiness at the, at the core of it. Um, you know, there's... Um, so... You know, I, I wouldn't be too pitying. I mean, in, in Russia is strange in that it is often both the perpetrator and the victim. But, you know, when we look at the biographies of, of mass murderers, they often have some pretty messed up childhood. So so let's not start absolving the Russian state and, and Russian political culture. And to a certain extent, you know, um, Russian social culture in, in being... Uh, an aggressor because they, they don't just do it to themselves. This is an empire that that has never for a moment, not for a moment, wanting to be anything but an empire and which sees as its divine rights to genocide others. And so this is not just internal trauma. Um, what's interesting is that they, like, they lock their own people up as well. But, but, you know, so did the Nazis. The Nazis had, you know, arrested many, many, many Germans and put them in concentration camps, you know, even as they turned on the Jews. Um, so these things often go together, um, internal and external. But, but 
what was really, really striking in my time in Russia, and, and this was actually apparent, not even from my TV work so much, but I used to just do little projects for the European Union and stuff when I was there. Um, to, when I was at film school, I kind of funded it by working as a consultant for, for various EU development programs. And I remember sort of going to the regions a lot and drinking with people in, you know, regional businesses and regional administrations. And and from the early 2000s, when I was going there, I mean, a few drinks in, you'd be like, oh, we're taking it all back. This is all ours. Let's let's divide Europe together, us and the EU. And I'd be like, well, actually, the EU is not about empire building, despite what some people in Britain say. It's, you know, it's 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 about some rules and all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll make up some rules. Well, let's carve up Europe together. Let's get rid of the Americans. Or with the Americans, let's carve up Europe together. Not for a moment did they stop thinking about the world as a doggy dog place where might is right. And not for a moment did they relinquish their belief that their right is to crush others and and that was that never went away there was i don't really think there was a romantic moment when that went away um i think even in in the early 1990s when there was there were democratic aspirations i don't think there was any serious aspirations to get over the legacy of being an empire um so and and we can tie that to trauma humiliated cultures want to humiliate others you know we could get into the political psychology that informs this need to crush others in a way that does not reflect rational self-interest yeah this is not a sort of like oh let's expand our economic might by creating the east india company sort of empire building this is completely self-destructive empire building um you know it's what psychoanalysts would call secondary narcissism when you want things you don't need and that actually destroy you because there's some deep 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 lack of something you know attention love self-respect in the middle of it all and often very self-destructive i think this is what we also have to understand we talk of russia as living off you know empire building but this is not 19th century empire building a la france and britain which is deeply which is embedded in a theory of rational self-interest this is this is a self-destructive empire building which is much weirder pulling everybody down to your own level sucking them into the vortex of your own hell very, very different to to the classic ideas of empire building. And um, that's something that's going to take a, a hell of a lot to to um, to get over. I was going to try and unpick that because there's a there's a curious similarity, uh, maybe not so curious at all. Um, one of the Nazi propaganda techniques was also the sort of, sort of play the aggressive victim. And that's something I think you see very closely in, in in the Russian character, whether it comes through in terms of sort of, uh, you know, passive nostalgia and a sense of loss of, of the Soviet Union, whatever, or as we're seeing currently now, an extremely aggressive victimhood that is blaming everyone for the aggression that is actively inflicted. And it's not just a propagandist conceit, is it? I mean, it worked in Germany because of the deep-seated sense of... Uh, betrayal after the first world war that was then sort of leveraged and in russia you get the impression that they have this sense of loss a sense of lost potential which is potentially quite rational because there are several points in russian history where they could have taken alternative turn where things could have turned out potentially differently or not taken the worst possible route which seems to be another feature of russian history going for the the absolute sort of worst case scenario each time 
And I think Russians have this deep sense of of a lost utopia. Um, but the way it comes out, as you say, is in this aggressive victimhood, which um, I don't think too many people realize that 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 characteristic is not just a propagandic conceit, but it, it exists inside millions of people's heads is extremely toxic. Yeah, look, propaganda only works in it when it when it reverberates with what people with 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 people's traumas and desires and often unspoken desires i mean like the victimhood thing we saw milosevic would do this as well the nazis famously every hitler speech or Goebbels speech starts with the whole world especially the jews have conspired against us and forced us into this war same you know, the russians is like the main russian propaganda line is we have no choice we were forced into this by the great conspiracy um, I mean, there's several things to think about here. Uh, firstly, I think Eric Fromm, the great German psychoanalyst, talks about the victim narrative in German in Nazi propaganda, basically saying that this is the classic thing of like, when they're, when when bullies claiming victimhood, what they're actually saying, this is what we want to do to you. Yeah, this is they're preparing the ground, say, we are the victim, we have been victimized, therefore I'm going to crush you. Yeah, it's the bully preparing the ground. Uh, we can also talk about, look, it's very classic as well around, uh, among among mass murderers. They always have a victim complex. They were hurt. They were wounded. They had to go and kill all those women. I mean, this is classic, deeply, deeply, deeply deranged behavior. Um, it's about not taking responsibility as well, which is always a, a very big sign of a sick culture. Um, or, or also, like, it's it's the geopolitical reflection of, of the internal reality. When you live in Russia, you're humiliated all the time. You're humiliated by the state, by your teachers, by your husband. It's a culture that is built on humiliation, uh, deeply reflected in the literature, and um, and and in a way that ref that that internal humiliation is then sort of projected onto the outward. You know, so you don't say you, know, you come home, you've been spent your day being humiliated by bureaucrats, cops, your boss, etc., etc., etc. You come home full of resentment, and then on the TV, Putin saying, "Ah, it's Obama who was in humiliating you all day." So it's a way of actually just exporting internal tensions as well. But every Putin speech, like every Hitler speech, um, and often many Trump speeches, it really goes through one rhythm. He will start off as the humiliated Russian everyman. We, his body even does this. He does the sort of face, the sad face of Putin. I'm um, boy. And we've been humiliated. We've been humiliated. And you're supposed to go, yes, I've been humiliated. And through the speech, he'll grow and grow and grow. And in the end, he is, you know, Agira, the, the the god of wrath and anger, humiliating others. So you go on this emotional journey from a, a sort of depressed state to a state of dominance. And look, this is, you know, many psychoanalysts have analyzed Hitler speeches. They did the same thing. Putin does this kind of like slightly crappy Putin version of it, but it's very effective. And, and he's good at that. He performs every stage of the Russian everyman. I mean, the stories he tells himself, the way... He was a taxi driver in the 90s. That's that's quite clever. It relates to so many people who who had to go through many transformations in the 1990s, which they may have found humiliating. So again, he's playing into that sense of humiliation and then taking revenge. Did that um, actually happen? I cannot imagine him driving a taxi. I mean, well, I mean, like really... maybe a couple of times that people like did like, you know, do everyone's doing a bit of everything to get by. Um, but but I think the way he raises it is yeah. on purpose, of course, to identify himself with the humiliated 1990s. Well, this is it. Uh, I mean, back in the 90s, everyone needed to earn a little bit of money because, you know, you weren't getting your paid your wages. If you had a car, you had to fill it with fuel. If you ran out of money, well, what are you going to do with your car? It's going to sit there. So you'd stop and you'd pick anyone up. You'd be able to go onto the street and flag a car down. I got a ride with cops sometime. Quite worried that I might not get home. But no, the cops were earning a bit of money on the side by uh, 
exactly. giving people a lift. Exactly. So, so, so he was like basically a bodyguard. So why, why not? Um, I think, I think it's quite interesting. You, you know, so as I said, I worked in entertainment TV. So one of the formats that the company I worked for tried to make was called Faking It, which is a very famous BBC and uh, Channel Four entertainment show from the nineties and then from two thousand. Sorry. And basically, you take a person or a celebrity, and they have to learn a new profession in like two days. So, like, you take a you know a truck driver, they have to learn to become a chef, and you know the celebrity ones were very famous. So you take a footballer, and they have to learn how to be an engineer in three days, and they have to like convince a panel that they've done it. So they tried to do that show in Russia, and everyone was like, "Hold on, we just do this all the time. This is just like normal. What's, what, where's what's the show? We don't get it. This is like all of us did this all the time. Where's the entertainment we've all, value? We've all yeah. been through thirty professions in the nineteen nineties to survive. Complete flop. Yeah. What formats do work though? Because that, that's quite interesting. I mean, which ones did transition? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So I can tell you what 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 didn't work. Uh, Apprentice complete fail. Even though then again, it was the company I worked with made it. Um, Apprentice was a complete fail because they had a real oligarch proper oligarch, Patanen, like proper scary oligarch, not like Trump, who's a, like, you know, a con man. They're a proper oligarch, yeah. proper money. gold-plated toilet oligarch, yeah. No, 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 Patanen is a real oligarch. Yeah. Um, so they got, like, a good casting, you know, you, you always get, like, basically the way it works is you buy the rights and, like, um, can't remember who makes The Apprentice. Is that BBC or so? I can't remember now. And if you have, like, producers come over and 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 basically babysit the Russian production company through all the stages. So very well made, very well edited, great music, great storylines, complete and utter fail. Because that's not how Russians thought you make money. You don't make money by having up, oh, I've got this very clever business idea and I'm going to sell it. That's not how it works. You make money by extortion, um, having connections in government, corruption, sleeping your way up. You don't, if you have a brilliant business idea, you end up in jail, you know, because the, the, the bad boys come and take it away from you. So apprentice complete fail. Um, the ones that did well were stuff like Survivor. So put people on desert island and torture them. And Russians were like, oh, yeah, this sort of reflects our experience, the gulag, humiliation. So anything based on humiliation and getting people to survive in extreme conditions, Russians were like, oh, yeah, we know that. We're up so that. those yeah. did very, very well. That's very telling, isn't it? And um, I remember because I, I used to translate and, and teach English for uh, Finnish business people um, in St. Petersburg. Um, and they had all sorts of incredible stories there. The president of the company was was blown up. There's all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but uh, they also describe a story of when finished businessmen. No, so a finished businessman would invite, or they would be asked by Russian business people to come out and see how their businesses function. You know, and of course, many of these businesses have been built up over generations. Whether it be fish farms or whatever, it requires consistent investment year after year. Uh, and not taking too much out of the business uh, in order for it to to succeed. And of course, you know, the Russians come out uh, and are horrified, absolutely horrified at the idea that you can't make a, a quick profit out of it. You know, and constantly asking questions, well, what if we kill all the fish and create another business or do something else? And they just don't get that idea of generational investment. Because they knew that they're sitting on a powder keg and and you have no rights and they were right that's what i mean my my russian friends look many of them are shocked about the invasion but but they always told me they always knew that you better sell all your fish <laughs> you know you better you better be in a position to sell your fish at any point they always knew something bad was going to happen and they never bought the idea that russia wasn't a path to reform the only people who bought it were stupid foreigners like me and even even stupid foreigners like me could tell by 
well, 2008, the invasion of Georgia was like one was a massive wake up call. And but then the second arrest of Hodakovsky, the second trial was just so perverse that you were like, whoa, there is something dark going on. It was way beyond. It was so clinically perverse and mm. purposefully perverse um, that 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 it was. Um, yeah, you could tell there was just some some sickness was starting to to to, to infest what seemed to be hard, tough, rational men. There was also something very, very off. Well. Was that before, because Khodorkovsky's uh, lawyer, no, sorry, it's Bill Browner, wasn't it? It's Bill Browner's lawyer who was, uh, you know, tortured. And, so that was uh, happening at the same time, but when, 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 like, so, but that's, you know, you should remember, that's exactly what happened. Mm. But Medvedev, who was president when I was there, came in saying he's going to investigate it. He was like, what a disgrace. We don't, you know, he took Browder's side at first. We forget this. First, it was going to be, you know, the new Russian government came in in 2008, Medvedev, pro-NATO, pro-West, visiting Twitter offices, um, you know, we forget there was this moment in 2008 when 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 Russia was like had put into place a president that was meant to be pro-West. And now he's the most yeah. revanchist, ridiculous, comedically um, anti-Western um, um, little 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 twerp. But but then he was the opposite. And there was all this hope. And he went to Obama and it was great and all that crap. So so we forget. No, so Medvedev said he would investigate this. He said this was a disgrace. This is terrible yeah. that lawyers were being killed. I think and with my cynical nineties head on, I was looking at that thinking, no, I don't don't buy a single word of that. But they actually, Bill Browner's lawyer, who uh, incredibly intelligent uh, man, not only did was he was he horrifically uh, obviously murdered within the prison system, they then put him on trial, didn't they? Even though he was dead, they posthumously prosecuted him. And at that point, it gets medieval, doesn't it? I'm not even sure that Stalin prosecuted. A dead person. Yeah, there's an empty chair. No, I wrote about it. It was. It yeah. was. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why medieval. It's more like something out of some sort of like bizarre comedy horror. No, no. no but with, with a. I mean, why medieval? For me, it's not medieval. It's like it's like out of some sort of like absurdist play about, you know, an absurdist satire about dictatorships. And they're like, oh, let's play it. Or the well, the Pussy Riot trial as well, which was consciously a trial of witches. You know, they were being on trial for being witches. Uh, that was sort of playing in medievalism. But but yeah, it all I remember writing about these things and and often I'd get sort of notes from readers saying, because that time I was writing already, and I'd get notes from readers saying, well, this can't be true. And 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 I always said when you when you live in Russia, then you realize that Bulgakov and Gogol are are realists. And you know, yeah, you live yes. you live in this surreal space. But also because it's a very literary culture, even its sadisms are played out with with a lot of literary. Well, it's just somebody's thinking about it as a story at the same time. Mm. Um, and we can spend a lot of time thinking why that is. But um, yeah, almost literary references are, are one of the few common signifiers that pull this chaotic culture together. One of, one of the few things, isn't it? Culture and also the, the backwards looking nature. And I've spoken to so many Ukrainians now who talk about Ukrainian culture being essentially a forward looking, quite a dynamic and innovative culture. Russian culture is as extraordinarily backward-looking, nostalgic, um, in many ways idealistic. And I think you can see that in the Russian opposition. Sometimes you want to tear your hair out. That There's a lack of, of maturity. There's a lack of um, even reflection there and a lot of naivety, despite facing, you know, I mean, if I ever get them on the channel, I'll put these questions to them. Uh, no success so far. Um but, you know, they're facing uh, the Silovyaki, an organization which is uh, a cross between, you know, the worst of the mafia and the SS. 
and yet they're coming to it with a, a near childlike innocence in some in some cases. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 these terms, Russian liberals and Russian opposition, I don't find that very useful. You have to sort of break it down. There's different ones doing different things, and all of them politically impotent. Mm. Um, but, but I, I don't like lumping them all together. It's very true if you look at the literature. Uh, so Vladimir Yermolenko, a good friend of mine, who's the head of Ukrainian Pen, points this out to me. If you look at the Russian literature of the 90s and 2000s, even the very good ones like Sorokin, they're very good at sort of deconstructing, you know, the feces of of Russian and Soviet culture. They're, literally, Sorokin is probably the most important Russian writer, has a book about a piece of shit walking around town. I mean, literally. That's, that's, so so, so my, my, my reference to feces is not, is not uh, facetious. Um, so, but they're very good at that. Mamliev, all these writers, they're very good at like, you know, almost like these sort of doctors looking at a decomposed corpse and sort of prodding it and making sort of wry remarks about it. But none of those books have a capacity for imagining the future, while the Ukrainian literature, which is often full of sadness and despair in the works of Jadan and Andrew Hovich, always has a glimmer of the future. There's something quite almost American-y about it sometimes. There's always a vision, you know, a sad one, one through tragedy, with Jed Dan, it's often a road, actually, he writes, you know, roads play a very big role in his books. But, but you know, there's a sense of a journey to somewhere. Not always clear where to, but there is a journey somewhere. There's a vision of somewhere that we're trying to get to, even even when it's through tears. There even is that, that most famous you... passage, probably one of the most famous passages in Russian literature about the Troika, you know, heading off who knows where. But that's written by Ukrainian. I mean, that's Gogol. Rather that's than funny as well. yeah, that, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to sort of de 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 sort of deconstruct about the Ukrainian impulse in 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 Russian literature. It would be very very interesting to start passing that apart. Um, again, there's so much to do on 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 the cultural front. Um, and again, um, Russian intellectuals who are mo you know most of the ones certainly that I I know are very anti-Putin have never really tried. I mean, there has been no, and I really hope this changes now. There's been no attempt to understand the imperial um, structures and underlying patterns in, in high Russian culture. There's only really one book about it written by a Polish American, which costs $150. She's a professor at Florida University or something like that. Um, but but Russians haven't. It's been interesting because, you know, in, in England and America, one can sometimes say it goes too far. But what, when I was at university, all we did was deconstruct power and empire in English literature. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of kind of. Sometimes it got a bit boring, but but that's all we did, you know. Like you know, I think we were down to Jane Austen's hidden imperial um, imperial patterns by the end, uh, because she doesn't talk about the empire, you know. But but in everyone, like you know, that's all we did. We we looked at power and and power and empire essentially. You know? And there's only one uh, person who regularly talks about this stuff, and mm -hmm. um, he does have a you know quite a strong audience, albeit with intelligence. That's Viktor uh, Shindyarovich, who of course has that. Jewish perspective as well. I would say, you know, you're you're slightly on the edge of society. You're able to take a step back and you're able to look at things in a more analytical way. And he regularly talks about the decolonization, fragmentation, and he, he deconstructs these kind of things. Um that's great. Also Khodorkovsky, Jewish as well. I mean, there's a pattern perhaps of that slightly more rational way of looking at Russia's history. You 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 can't be purely Russian to do it. Well, nobody is very, yeah, very few people are, but, but, but I think, I think, you know, you really need to, you know, you always have good individual voices, but, but, um, um, it hasn't become a, a mainstream of, of 
Russian literary criticism or something, uh, even though it's staring us in the face in many ways, in, in Tolstoy and in, in Pushkin. And 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 um, so, so, so I really hope that starts now. I hope the Russian intelligentsia, um, who do exist, I mean, they're mostly abroad now, really start taking on that that burden um, because it's it's strange. I mean, whatever you might think of wokeism or, or all these things, it's good that American, British, French intellectual classes spend a lot of our time deconstructing our own our own evils that are encoded within even you know our most glorious whatever culture. It's good that we do that. I think that's a sign of a healthy society. In Russia, there is this still this this tradition of deifying dead writers, which again smell. It's like the literary version of of the death cult of Stalin and Lenin. It's like ah, oh, let us pray to the corpse of Pushkin. It's like no, can we stop praying to corpses? Whether liberal corpses or illiberal corpses, can we just stop praying to corpses? Can we understand what we need to learn from them? Understand what they did wrong, and can we move on? Um, which is what normal cultures do. Uh, and I always found that weird. This bizarre deification of 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 Pasternak, of Pushkin, Pushkin Nashravsior, Pushkin is everything to us. Kind of creepy. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to do, and we can talk about political opposition, all that kind of stuff. That's really hard in a dictatorship, but there is absolutely nothing stopping a new generation of, of, of Russian thinkers really getting to grips with the, I'm going to call it evil, with the evil or the prejudices, the prejudices that lead to evil that are, that are, that are there even within within what's thought of as the humanistic tradition of, of Russian culture. Another thing to get to grips with, I think, and uh, and this emerges from some some of the stuff you said earlier, and obviously from from you know reading and rereading your books many times, <clears throat> and that is the extraordinary compartmentalization. Because if you look at much of Russian propaganda, um, you know, speaking to experts on Russian propaganda, you know, we tend to think quite naively that people will watch these agitation formats they'll listen to Solovyov and Simonyan and they'll believe word by word but that's not how it works is it I mean first of all not everyone watches these programs or even knows who say Simonyan is um but secondly it's an entertainment format so people will know they're being lied to um and but they'll listen to it and they'll take away from it what they want to take away from it the things that sort of maybe pander to their desires and whatever and the rest is almost like background noise as shocking as it is to us because most of what's being said on these programs just reeks of immorality and toxic attitudes and you know layers of lies upon lies um and yet they 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 spew out ideas that even in the same sentence will contradict each other and to our minds that kind of jars but it doesn't quite seem to necessarily jar seeing all these conflicting narratives uh, to to every Russian. Um, yeah, they're complete. Well, firstly, you know, they're, they're kind of bili birda, which is a lovely Russian word. They're kind of this nonsense of, of arguments. It's something that you hear in Russia all the time. Um, so, so that's not no one's looking for ideological consistency in the first place. Um, they've grown up with so many different belief systems and paradigms that, that you know being consistent doesn't really isn't really a value uh no one's looking for consistency um doesn't reflect their lives but you're quite right look i mean it's not that unusual i mean i live in america uh, it's shock shock so i mean the, the point of these shows is say really outrageous scary things that get get the audiences in they're shock jocks i mean um 
so so in that sense, if you know the American experience, then it's not that much of a not not that new. Um, what's interesting is that it's sponsored by the state, supported by the state, you know, and and pushed by the state. So these kind of shows they get around thirty percent in. They are quite famous. These presenters they do have they have, they do have very high profiles. Um, they're not they're not. But but the shows are, are watched around thirty uh, percent. The ratings are dipping at the moment, uh, so that means they have to get more and more and more and more shocking. So yeah, people watch it as as dark entertainment and and as a license to hate. Really, that's what they're doing. They're giving you a license to hate. That's what a lot of propaganda does. It allows you to articulate and express taboo feelings that in normal society need to hide, and suddenly it's okay to hate, to want to murder. You know, that's that's what propaganda that's the propaganda trick of propaganda to take what you feel already and and steer it and invalidate it and then make it profitable to the to the people doing it um so yeah no 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 one's really like following every word but there is a consistent worldview which is a conspiratorial worldview that is consistent the conspiracy changes the nature of the conspiracy changes one day it's nato then it's the british secret service then it's the jews then it's someone else i mean but the conspiratorial worldview is there. The way that kind of excuses responsibility is there. Um, that we live in a doggy dog world where Putin might be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch is there. Um, so, so, so there are kind of underlying worldviews which are fairly consistent, even though um, you're quite right that, that you know one minute you know we want to make peace, the next we want to make war. One minute we're invading. Ukraine to get rid of Nazis, then we're doing it because of NATO. It, it's always changing. So yeah, it's it's, it's pretty chaotic. Uh, Putin has a, a sort of problem though, doesn't he? Because a lot of the propaganda effort uh, until recently internally has been to stoke apathy and difference, is to make sure people are apolitical, don't group together, don't take action, don't believe in anything, don't even believe there's such a thing as objective truth. A lot of it's there to say, look, you know, um, it might be bad here, and we might be a you know a, a, a load of the world's worst you know a holes, but it's like that everywhere. So don't don't think there's there's somewhere else better. Now suddenly, he's needing to pivot. Now suddenly he's needing people to take action to uh, uh, follow through on their nationalistic feelings and go and fight on Ukrainian soil. That's kind of changing the dynamic, isn't it, of his informational regime. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think they're going, I, I think they're in a very, very vulnerable place. You're quite right. It's not just that. I mean, without a doubt, it's these going from propaganda of apathy to trying to stoke motivation. And there's not that much motivation, let's be honest. It just needs enough soldiers to go and die. I mean, still, they're still quite happy for the rest of it to be, to be apathetic. There are no signs of the war in Moscow, by the way. There are no posters, nothing, as if it doesn't exist. So, no, no, for a lot of people, he's still trying to keep them in a sort of like, stay at home, drink your beer, you know whatever, uh, stare at and watch some TV shows. But he does need at least a certain amount to be mobilized and he's trying to instill this patriotic education, which by the way is, is failing largely. Like people aren't attending these courses. Um, so you're right, they're in a vulnerable place, but they're in a vulnerable place for another reason as well, uh, which is deeply related. I mean, the deal was always propaganda on TV, buy into it to a certain extent, but definitely play into it, but then get on with your personal life. Now that's changing. Uh, it was basically a system that was also based on a pyramid of corrupt mutual interest. You know, 
you could always make your money in different ways throughout the system. And they kind of let you alone to do that. And you could be as corrupt as you needed to be as long as you swore fealty when it mattered. That was the deal. And, and that's being replaced with something which is much more Stalinist, something which, you're quite right, requires motivation and pulling together and sacrifice. And it's very unclear whether they're going to be able to manage that. I mean, they're still very much in transition. And we'll see. That's a fairly big transitional moment. And we'll see how, how that plays out for them. And it's a time where Putin himself is physically weakening and... Uh also potentially sort of strategically weakening within society or rather within the elite, which is far more important. So it is a, a pivotal moment. I mean, I know we're, we're sort of running out of time, but one one question I wanted to throw at you, which sort of looks at the sort of slightly bigger picture outside of, of uh, Moscow, because it's really easy to get obsessed with Russia and forget that actually, you know, Ukraine is a victim here and Ukraine has developed extraordinary techniques and resilience to counter Russian propaganda. And one of the reasons actually I changed this channel was was actually so we could learn from the Ukrainian experience so that we in the West could adapt and learn to fight it. And you wrote a fascinating article recently, which suggests that despite the, you know, the general hostility towards Putin, there are aspects of his narratives, aspects of his projection that are still, you know, getting into our heads and we have to fight that. So I'm interested to hear, hear your view on that. Okay, I've been writing a lot since the war started, so that can be um, um, I don't know which particular piece you're referring to. I think but... this was like from three weeks ago. You must write a lot. You, <laughs> um, I think. Yeah, but, but think... no, no, but yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. Um, but I, I mean, I'm happy to answer that question even without referencing the piece. Um, I think. Um, so yeah, I get asked a lot because I sort of focus on propaganda. Um, so I get asked a lot about like you know which Kremlin disinformation is really important, and I don't think we're into that. I don't think that's the important thing now. I mean, obviously they're putting out stuff about you know, atrocities were staged and all this sort of nonsense, which works with a tiny bunch of people. But there is a bigger one, a bigger narrative, which I think is is there, which is kind of the inevitability of Russia, that, you know, we're always going to be addicted to its oil. We're always going to be addicted to its gas. We have to make peace with it because it's big and strong and forever. And whatever happens, we're going to have to bend the knee. And, and that's very prevalent. I think that goes very deep also because it's 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 a tough question. It's not easy to cut yourself off from Russia. I think Germany has proved that it can become an independent of Russian energy within one year, which is pretty stunning. Um, we need a lot more of that. We, we need to really cut Russia off like an abusive partner or an abusive neighbor. Um, and it will be expensive. It will be tough, but it's really, really important. Um, you can't stick around an unreliable, abusive and psychotic sort of partner. So and you have to. Um, yeah. I mean, they'll carry on as well, um, mounting information assault because it's unlikely Russia will suddenly become a liberal democracy. It's unlikely it'll suddenly forego uh, attacking or trying to control and coerce its neighbours. So it, it does look like we need to build our defences up for for the long term because this problem won't go away. No, it won't go away. And and depending on how well they do, you know, there'll be a lesson for China, obviously, and and we'll see Russia and China combine forces in the information space, uh, supporting each other's narratives and so on. <clears throat> that doesn't mean they're allies, uh, but but they do. They are sort of partners of convenience. Um, and th we've seen them joined by Iran. And, and I think that authoritarian network will expand. So, yeah, no, no, it's going to be a pretty bumpy 21st century. Um, on the upside, I think we've seen democracies pull together for the first time. I think Ukraine has reminded so many people of, of why 
why our political values exist um that they're worth fighting for so so ukraine is a huge inspiration for us all apart from just being the front line the front line in this battle um so so i don't think we should be scared of russia in any way um i do think obviously we we do need to start thinking of once ukraine has won this war to the extent that it, that it wants to and can how do we guarantee its security so russia can't do it again we, we have to, the, the working assumption has to be that whoever is in charge in of russia they're going to try this again in two years or 10 years it doesn't matter and the question is how do we make ukraine moldova maybe georgia if georgia wants to as secure as poland and estonia mm-hmm. that's the only way it's going to happen i mean kazakhstan seems to have the protection of china now which is why russia sticks out of, sticks out of that but um um that's really the question we need to start answering and whether that's de facto nato entry de jure nato entry something else the only way this calms down is if russia knows that the deterrence is so big it's not worth the effort um poland and estonia used to be as vulnerable as ukraine they're not anymore so that's what we've got to get to and even though that you know there's gonna be a lot of people who push back against that that's also better for our security it's cheaper because things are more stable and yeah we don't know what's going to happen in russia we're going to make sure that it can't attack ukraine and others again and i think that reminded us and especially ukraine's experience has reminded us that democracy isn't inevitable and isn't eternal uh that it actually requires you know an enormous amount of thought continuous work to evolve it um and that it could it could it could disappear and to an extent you know this will upset maybe some of my audience because i know i've got a mixed audience but even the trump experience suggests that uh representational democracy um you know will will come under threat uh and we, we have to uh you know build in resilience and a consciousness of that yes no i agree with those words i just wonder what it means in practice <laughs> That, that should be the subject of a net conversation. I've got through about a quarter of my questions and I know we've almost reached the end because uh, I know you have to pop off. Um, this was, I think, the audience is actually going to love this. I mean, it was uh, something I was looking forward to for a very long time. And uh, uh, I'm deeply grateful that you've uh, spent the time to share your experience with uh, us. Great questions. And we should continue. I agree. I mean, I completely agree with you, Jonathan. I, 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 I want to start thinking what that means. What is... I mean, what I'm thinking about, what does it mean in the information space? What sort of policies do we need? What institutions do we need? In the Second World War, the British had the political warfare executive that dealt with propaganda, essentially. Good propaganda, maybe propaganda for good, but but it thought about information security and influence. In the Cold War, the US had the US Information Agency. Um, What would be the versions today, you know? Um, we keep on waiting for media to solve this issue, and I, I don't think that's media's job. No, in fact, the Ukrainians that I've spoken to have showed me that you know they all said exactly the same thing there was a problem, it was obvious, it was right in front of their faces, and they were waiting for government to solve it. And then they realized that, that no one was going to come and bail them out. So you have this extraordinary sort of self generating, uh people grasping authority and saying, no, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And not all those solutions worked. But I think that that for me is a real lesson of what, uh, you know, certainly the Maidan generation seems to have done is they've gone out and they've innovated a bunch of sort of political journalistic techniques um, 
to to create the freedom we see here and not turn into a Belarus, which is the alternative path uh, I think that Ukraine could have gone down. Yes, that too. Um, I mean, Ukraine is an example and inspiration in so many ways and in that way as well. Thank you so much, Peter. This has been a real pleasure. Bye. Bye. Thank you.